Okay, today is March the 25th, 2010. And let's see, you know what? I better announce something because I nearly forgot it. Tomorrow is Friday night at the movies here at CBC. Did y'all remember that? We, we might change the night to popcorn night. We might change it to popcorn and cookie night. I'm not sure. Anyway, <clears throat> we had a good turnout last time and we have some good movies. And so, you know, some of the movies, uh, or let me put it this way. It's hard to find movies that you can show at church these days. And so the ones that we found, though, are, are I believe are really good. And I've screened this one. I, got, I have to admit, the last one that I put on the, uh, that we saw, I had not seen. But it was uh, one of those Hallmark Master series. And I thought, I just hope that I don't get embarrassed with this. So uh, <clears throat> one other thing, if you see me kind of stiff, I got on a backswing about an hour ago and was going to stretch. I think I overdid it, so I have a few back spasms, so it's it's okay. It's just nothing major, just a little ache or pain that grabs me from here uh, every once in a while. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so glad that we can come to You at any time and know that You're always there. Know that You're always caring for us, more than interested, and You have the solutions. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hope that helps us, that absolute confidence that it engenders in us who study to show thyself approved. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I have a um, newsletter. I guess you call it a newsletter. Grace in Focus from GES, the Grace Evangelical Society. And there was one little part. It's just a couple of paragraphs here. But I've never heard someone actually articulate anything on this. And it really caught my eye. So I'm going to uh, read it to you. It's by um, Bob Wilkin. Bob Wilkin is the, the founder and head man at Grace Evangelical Society. He says, the winter of 2009 issued of Dallas Theological Seminary's Kindred Spirit magazine is devoted to God's heart for the Jewish people. One article in particular caught my attention, An Uncommon Friendship. That was the name of it. It is about a DTS graduate, graduate, a contemporary of mine. His name was Ken Hendren, graduated two years before I did. Ken and his wife moved to Israel and became Israel, Israeli citizens in 1982. 
This story is about Ken's friendship with a Jewish teenage boy, a friend of his daughter. They would meet for hours at a time to discuss the Old Testament as well as life. The following paragraph by Ken, goes, who goes, now goes by Noam in Israel, caught my attention as I believe it will yours. Noam. Now, he, I guess he changed his name from Ken to Noam. He says, <coughs> writing this, he says, I could see that David was learning, uh, leaning towards faith in Yeshua. That's, of course, that's Jesus. So I knew I needed to warn him. David, before you make any decisions, you need to know that here in the land, putting your faith in Yeshua is not going to score you any points. It could bring a lot of problems with family, rejections by your friends, and people will think that you've joined the cult. You really need to count the cost because there could be negative repercussions. Now, this is the part that I really that I wanted you to really notice. He looked at me and said, I'm sorry, it's too late. I already believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. Now, this is, this is the interesting part. He says, I'm not sure what Ken meant when he warned David about making any decision. Did he think that faith in Jesus was one of these decisions? Regardless of what the evangelist meant, Note that the listener knew that faith is not a decision and knew that the evidence had already persuaded him. Belief is not a decision. It just happens when the evidence convinces someone. In this case, the evidence from the Word of God shared by Ken convinced David that Jesus is indeed Israel's long-promised Messiah. Now, I think that's wonderful because you may have hear, you may hear evangelists from time to time. I know of one in particular <clears throat> that uh, have a, they have altar calls usually, and they say, "Now this is the time to make your decision." And I reflected back when I had that same experience with regards to being in a church, hearing the gospel, and there would be an altar call going on. And I can't remember thinking, okay, now this is what I've heard and these are my options and now it's time to make a decision. That's not what happened to me. I don't know if it happened to you that way, but I kind of doubt it. What actually happened was I heard the evidence and the next thing I knew, I believed it. There was no conscious decision on my part. There was no struggling. I didn't think... Okay, over here are all the points. Over here are all the doubts. Let's see. Now, I have to make a decision here and evaluate it. That's not what happened. I heard the evidence. It made sense to me, and I simply believed it. And when someone asked me from that point on, are you a believer, are you a Christian, I don't have to go back to a decision. All I have to go back to is the fact that there was a point in time that I heard the evidence, and I believed it. But there was no struggle. There was no decision. I've never heard anyone really articulate that in that way. And when people, I think sometimes when evangelists or pastors or others say it's time for you to make a decision, I don't think, in the first place, I don't think you can force a decision like that, can you? I don't think you can dictate to a person, okay, I've given you the evidence right now and it's time for you to make a decision. 
that might not be the right time for that person. Maybe the Holy Spirit is not convicting them to that point at that particular time. Or maybe they need more evidence. Whatever it is, all I know in my own experience is that I heard it, and the next thing I knew, that makes sense to me, and I believe that. And it wasn't a, a decision. I just thought that was interesting. <clears throat> okay, now we're going to get on with our knitting in First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter We are in verse 10. Verse 10 is the last verse of the first chapter. And if you'll remember, when I gave you an outline, the last verse or the last few verses of each chapter deals with the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, both of these epistles are very heavy with regards to to what we would call the rapture of the church. And this is something that all of us should be interested in because Jesus Christ is coming back. And He has rewards and decorations, and one of the rewards is the crown of righteousness for those who what eagerly anticipate His arrival. There's nothing that has to occur. There's no event... No prophecy, nothing that has to occur before Jesus Christ returns. This is called the imminency of the rapture. And we're going to go somewhat slow and meticulous through some of these verses because I'm not, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there is a great disparity of views when it comes to when Jesus Christ is going to return. Of course, there's a few fruitcakes out there that don't believe that he's going to return at all. And I call them fruitcakes because the Bible is so clear. Jesus said himself that he was going to return. The question for a lot of people is when? When is he going to, turn, to, to return? In fact, some people will classify your theology with regards to when you think that event is going to happen. They may say you are a post-tribulationist. You know what that is? I mean, excuse me, a post-millennialist. I, I don't like to say it word because I'll get kind of like this. Post-millennialist. There you go. That means that people, there are some people who think that Jesus Christ is going to return after the millennium. In other words, <laughs> I can't hardly say this with a straight face, but they believe that we are going to get better and better and we're going to make the world so great that when Jesus Christ returns, He's not going to have to do anything. It'll all be ready for Him. In a nutshell, that's essentially uh, the idea there. And then there's others who are in the amillennial camp. The alpha, the A, before the millennial, means it's in the Greek it's called alpha negative, and it means no millennial. 
In other words, that some people think, and this is even to me more bizarre, that we're in the millennium already. And if that's the case, I am very disappointed, to say the least. I don't see any lions laying down with the lambs right now. I don't see Jesus Christ ruling the earth from Jerusalem. In fact, I don't see myself, are you, in resurrection bodies. Uh, anyway, if you have any theology at all, hardly, it's not hard to discount those two. There's also another uh, idea that we are going to go through part of the seven years of Daniel's 70th week. We call it the tribulation. There are those that think that we're only going to go through part of it. Some think all the way up to the midpoint, 21 months past the midpoint. There's different views on that. Let me tell you, I'm bummed out if I think I have to go through one day of it. I don't. You know, this is not something that I would really prefer to go through. And then there are those that are known as pre-tribulationists, or pre-millennialists, but actually we even go more distinct than that. We are pre-tribulationalists. But someone who believes in the uh, pre-millennial view believes that Jesus Christ is going to come before He sets up His kingdom. Now, to me, already that starts to make sense. That He would come in order to set up His millennial kingdom. He's going to be here to do it. I think that most of you would agree with me that this world is so fouled up. Not only in our country. I mean, we can see if you... This isn't a political statement. It's just fact. Things are not getting better. It's getting harder and harder to make it. And I think it might get even much harder than that before it's over with. But worldwide, we, for most uh, Americans, we live like kings as opposed to the rest of the world, and they have it harder than they used to have it. So it's great to know that Jesus Christ is going to come back and sort the whole thing out, start His own kingdom. And can you imagine Jesus Christ being the head of the entire world? I mean, Jesus Christ is the head of the universe as a member of the Godhead. But He's going to be the head of the world, the authority in the world. And when it says He's coming back with a rod of iron, there's not going to be all the nonsense that's going on now. And one of the things that I think, I, I just love this, uh, the Jews for the last two millenniums, in fact, uh, it's even before that, have been kicked around. You know, they, they went into captivity, and then they got out, then they were dispersed in A.D. 70. And then they came back into the land in 1948. And even now, though, they are being disparaged. And we know that uh, we shouldn't be surprised about that because Jesus Christ, through the prophets, had already said that that was going to happen that Israel was going to be a cup of trembling for the entire world. There would be many nations that would stumble over it, over Israel. Isn't that happening today? The UN goes bonkers when it comes to Israel. And God's 
unchanging promises as to those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed from Genesis 12 still apply. And I shudder when I see our leaders trying to force Israel to give up their land. Because God said, Woe unto those who will divide my land. And God means business, doesn't He? He'll do things in His time. So what we're looking at in verse 10 is really the first shot across the bow with regards to this very important subject matter with regards to Christ's return. And we've already started it. Actually, it's, it's finishing the sentence that started in verse 9. And to wait for His Son from heaven. However, we already have seen that that's not correct. It should be... Y'all don't, y'all don't see this yet. No, I haven't put it up there. Okay. There you go. And to wait for His Son from heaven, but actually it's the heavens. It's plural. That's one of the last things we covered last time. The fact that Jesus Christ is going to be coming through two heavens. He's in one heaven now, which is the third heaven, the throne room of God. And then He's going to go through the celestial sphere, the second heaven, and then the atmosphere of earth. And He's going to come back and He's going to take us back with Him, His bride. He will not touch earth. He won't touch earth until He comes yet another time, which is known as the second advent, technically speaking. And He's going to come through the third, the three heavens again. And here's the good news. We're going to be with Him. He's going to be riding a white horse. There's some people that think, well, is that, is that literal or is that figurative? Well, I can't say dogmatically either way, but I would think that it's literal. Jesus Christ can come back however He wants to. And he doesn't have to be in a spaceship either. He doesn't have to be wearing some kind of breathing apparatus or any of that type of stuff. In fact, I get I get goosebumps every time I see uh, the the movies. Uh, what's the if, uh, and they have the white horse that comes out Pegasus, and it comes out and spreads its wings. I don't remember the name of the movie maker that does that, but anyway, uh, he's coming back and he's going to. His foot then is going to touch ground where he left, which was what? Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. What's so funny? <laughs> Some of you remember this. Uh, he's going to go through the east gate in the temple. I think it's the east gate, I'm pretty sure. And the Muslims have put a, they've sealed up the, the gate. They put stones there. And they put a, a burial ground out in front of that. So Jesus Christ is going to leave the third heaven, go through the celestial sphere, go through the earth, come down there, and you oh, man, what a bummer now, I can't go in. <laughs> it is, it's laughable. So we already went over the Greek word anameno, A-N-A-M-E-N-O. Ana means it's stressing something. Meno means to wait. Why are they waiting for Jesus to come back? Because He said He was going to come back. And these Scriptures are the one, some of the ones that, that tell us that He's coming back. This is a hapax legomena, meaning that it's only used one time in the entire New Testament. And it's one time in the Old Testament. 
in Job chapter 7, verse 2, it says, As a slave who pants for the shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages. It's eager anticipation. It's a shame, it's a travesty that so many professing Christians today, if you ask them about the rapture, they don't even know what you're talking about. You know that there's a lot of believers out there that don't even know what the rapture is? Or if you talk about Christ's return, they really have no idea in their mind. It means nothing to them that He's going to return. And then we went through these verses. I won't do it again because we have a lot to cover. About eagerly waiting. Uh-oh, what did I do? Okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, Philippians 3.20 We eagerly await who loved His appearing in 2 Timothy 4.8 looking for the blessed hope. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> We've already gone over these two uh, present active infinitives to serve and to wait. See, waiting doesn't mean you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs. It means in the meantime, you're serving. The Lord has given us responsibilities, and we are to take the trade. Here's, here's one thing. I, I read something today. I was reading to my eyes glazed over today, but uh, I was reading one uh, page that said that Jesus Christ has, has left in our hands, essentially, the gospel. He depends upon us to get the gospel out. It's a treasure. And the more that you take that treasure and you give it to others, it keeps spreading. But some people will take that treasure and they will bury it. They don't do anything with it. Remember the parable about the talents? How one, one guy goes out and uses them and another guy a little bit and one of them buries it. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be ashamed because they, they didn't handle properly the gospel. They buried it rather than uh, use it. So then we have from the heavens, Uranos. We went over this already. It's a genitive plural masculine, which means it's the heavens. So you understand the Bible is more specific than just saying he's coming from the sky. He's coming from the three heavens, which would indicate that he is already in the third heaven. Now, we're plowing new ground here. This is Lesson 17, 325.10. Whom he, that would be God the Father, raised from the dead. You notice the from there, in, in the Greek word ek is in green, and we'll deal with that in a little bit. But to be raised is the... Greek word egyro, E-G-I-R-O, and it's a verb. It's an aorist active indicative. He's coming back at a point in time, and it's, the indicative mood means reality. He's actually going to do it. Egyro means to rise up. The reason that he's able to uh, return is because, first of all, he rose from the dead. Jesus could not come back from heaven unless he got out of the grave. And so this is the first way that the, this uh, preposition ek is used is Jesus was inside the grave and He had to raise out of the grave. Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights, then was resurrected in an instant. 
If there were, if that were not true, our faith is in vain and we have no salvation. Now, I, what is it? In two weeks, we're going to, is going to be Easter. Is that right? I believe it is, isn't it? One week from this Sunday. And I think I'll talk a little bit more about that. I mean, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then we have no hope. And He's a liar and He's not God. This is the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 16-19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I agree with that. However, we know that we serve the living Lord. And in this, whom, whom He raised from the dead, that would be God the Father, that is Jesus. Make sure that you know who it is. And the fact that is using Jesus emphasizes here the humanity of Jesus, the humanity of Christ. It was the humanity of Christ that died on the cross and was buried and was resurrected. Deity can't die. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. So far in this book, that phrase is the most important one that we've come upon. It's dealing with the rapture. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we saw that up here. Let's go back a little bit. Jesus Christ came from heaven and He came from the grave and He's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, the word deliver is ruamai, R-H-U-O-M-A-I. It's participle, present active. Present active participle. And it means to draw or snatch from danger. Rescue, deliver. This is a present active participle of sequence Meaning will begin at a point in time. Because Jesus Christ was in the grave. He was dead. He had to come out of a place. And He's come to a place where He is now in order to come and gather us together and take us home. Rapture of the earth. How did Jesus by the time? The element in the first two, Christ behind me, then was raised out of it. He has been in heaven for only two years. Believers will be delivered from the wrath to come, not out of wrath. And this is called a uh, participle of sequence. When Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, he died. Look at this third act. Wrath comes. So, sentence in the blank of a which is in a. And when you have that, deliver a kiss. Translated rescues, chapter one, heard from a dead resurrection. Here's another quote, and this is what to come heaven that I might note. There's going to be a lot of this verse is in the Paul is talking about, and for God to take His bride, us, and subject her to the horrors of the tribulation, which isn't for us anyway; it's for Israel. Doesn't make sense. We're not he did not destined us for that. He's fully capable of 
delivering us from that, and He is. Then we have uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17 states, For the great day of their wrath is come, and who is able to stand? Now, this is another argument about uh, when this is going to take place, and this is from John F. Walford, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. And this is from an article written in Bibliotheca Sacra, volume 111. And he says, he just quoted Revelation 6:17, at least a part of it. For that, for the great day of their wrath is come, who is able to stand. Notice he says their wrath, not our wrath. And there's distinctions that are made. We'll see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he's describing what's coming. There's a difference between us and them and what's going to happen. So he says the character of the judgments which will fall is such that they will affect everyone. Famine, pestilence, sword, earthquake, stars falling from heaven. The only way one could be kept from that day of wrath would be, would be to be delivered beforehand. Once you're in it, you're in it. The same context in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 also affirms that the believer will not be overtaken by the day of destruction like a thief in the night and that the believer is not to be included with the children of darkness who are doomed for destruction. When we get to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to see it keeps saying that we are children of light, but they are children of darkness. And the ones that are in darkness are the ones that the calamity is going to fall on. Can you mix darkness and light? And he's saying that if you are of the light, you're not going to come under this destruction because no one is going to be able to um, prevail against the woes and the calamity that is going to take place. Now, there's a few that are going to endure. That's true. But as far as being victorious in it, there's a difference between being victorious and surviving. And what did Jesus Christ say? What did He, what did he inspire? Y'all remember? Think for a moment. Can the church be defeated? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That sounds like it's a victory statement to me. And what I'm saying, there's not going to be any of that kind of victory in the tribulational period. There will be those who survive. But, you know, I, I thought about doing a study one time about the tribulation, but it's, it's, it, there's a lot of information. Chapters uh, 6 through 19 of Revelation is all about this horrible period. It's unbelievably devastating. Uh, even some of you know about the mark. Everybody here, I'm sure, has heard about the mark of the beast. And when you know about the chips and all this. There might be chips in there, but I think it's going to be a brand. I think it's going to be something that is visible. So when you look at somebody, you know where they are. You know who they belong to. And there are believers there are going to be sealed by Jesus Christ with a mark. And the unbelievers are going to be sealed with a mark from Satan. So when you go up and you see somebody, there's no doubt whose side you're on. And by the midpoint of the tribulation, the, after the abomination of desolation, 
the devastation and the calamity is going to be so severe, it's, it's hardly, you can't hardly get your mind around it. You, people that don't have the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. And anybody that would sell to them or help them would be executed. Right off the bat, one-fourth of the world's population, gone. I mean, I, I just won't, I'm tempted to go into it, but I won't. I'm just saying that this is not something, from my perspective, that Jesus Christ is going to submit His bride to. And I think the Bible uh, uh, hardly demonstrates that. Okay, so we're out of chapter 1. Okay, any questions before I move on? Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he asked about the uh, wedding supper for the bride. Now, that's going to occur. <clears throat> it's going to be in heaven, and it's going to occur before we come back down to earth with Jesus Christ. And uh, I love to think about it because I like to eat. And I imagine the table is going to have pretty fancy table dressings on it. You know, you go to a place and they have all the fancy ware. I never look at that. It's the food that I'm looking at. I don't care what kind of plate it's on. I don't care if it's plastic ware, silver ware, or chopsticks. It doesn't matter to me. I'm looking at the food. I can't wait to see what the food is going to taste like there. But anyhow, uh, to answer your question, um, even starting in Revelation chapter 5, it's, in, in fact, Revelation 4 and 5 is talking about the church being in heaven. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is, is talking about the church on earth. Revelation 4 and 5 is talking about the church in heaven. And then, starting chapter 6, everything changes because it starts the, um, the, the tribulation, the uh, uh, day of the Lord, the wrath that we've been talking about. And then you really don't see anything until... Chapter 20, and this is when uh, things start really moving and shaking, and it talks about the believers again. So we're in heaven before it starts. We're in heaven after it ends. I mean, after it's when uh, right before Jesus Christ comes down, that I, I, it's in Revelation 20. Let me check to make sure. <clears throat> Y'all can turn there also if you'd like. I'm sorry, it's in 19. I'm glad I checked. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Starting with verse 6. You're talking about the bride here. Uh, Verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and as the sound of many peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words, and then it goes on. And when you, excuse me, when you get to um, chapter 20, you have um, 
Satan bound in in uh, the latter part of that. You see. <clears throat> Satan doomed the great white throne. Uh, verse 11, if we read a couple more verses, it starts talking about the second advent of Christ and what He looks like. Fierce. So everybody quit looking at that and go back to where you are. I know y'all are tempted to just keep reading there because that's really interesting stuff, but quit reading it for now anyway. Read it when you get home. Um, so does that answer your question, Claudia? The timeline is when it's going to be. We're our, see, we're already going to be in heaven. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to already be uh, rewarded and decorated. And before the, the marriage feast takes, that, takes place, before Jesus Christ actually mounts up and returns. Okay? Any more? Okay. Uh, we only have a few minutes, but we'll just get our feet wet a little bit in chapter 2. I have a few notes of uh, description with regards to chapter 2. Paul did not go to Thessalonica for a vacation or to make speeches, but was on a mission to witness to unbelievers and train them. He did both. He accomplished this mission and reminded his readers that his motives and actions were honorable and not in vain. Now, this is important to him. Now, I think one reason that he goes into uh, several verses here substantiating the fact that he wasn't a loser. He didn't just get, go there and nothing happened. A lot took place, and that his motives were honorable. Now, why would he be doing that unless there were those who were have trying to assassinate his character, those who were maligning him and saying that he was uh, full of lies and he was only there to get the money and to manipulate or whatever else. So he's setting it straight, and he always does it in a way that is essentially irrefutable. So verse 1 through 12 is the presentation of the gospel. Verses 13 through 16 is the reception of the gospel. And verses 17 through 20 is the reward for witnessing. This is essentially just a very um, quick outline of chapter 2. So we have the first two verses make up the first sentence in chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. All we have time to do is probably take over this, take this first phrase. For you yourselves know, brethren, when you see you yourselves... The author is trying to get your attention. He is making an emphatic statement that involves you. He could very easily say, you know. But he's saying, you yourself know this. In other words, it, he's emphasizing that. And there's a great construction. I won't bore you with how you can tell that. I'll bore those guys in the back Sunday maybe with it, but... It's actually a Greek construction. It's not just something that this translator thinks. This is, I think I'll put yourself in there just to, to, for emphasis. No, the, the Greek construction itself shows that. So he's saying, you yourselves know that. It's like That's how I would say it. It's like, you yourself know this. The word know in the Greek is oida, O-I-D-A. 
It's a verb, present, active, indicative. It means to understand, remember, or to perceive. The fact that Paul was able to call them brethren proves that his visit to Thessalonica was successful. Didn't it? Huh? Isn't it great to be known as brethren? Now, there's one verse, you might not remember what verse it was, but there's one verse that we went over to demonstrate that Paul's not taking credit for this. He's not blowing his own horn. And he can't because what was accomplished was not accomplished in the power of Paul, was it? Now, what verse? Now, y'all, nobody look down at your Bible. Y'all all look up here. We went over a verse in chapter 1 that only had 10 verses in it that would substantiate that claim. Now, what was it? Now, don't shout it out if you know it, but just think about it. Don't you hate it when you have to think? Try to remember. There was a verse that would prove that Paul is not trying to take credit or get accolades from anyone because it wasn't Paul that accomplished this. First Thessalonians chapter one verse five. Now don't look down. Don't look. I gave you the verse. Does that help? We did not come in word only, but in the power. Now look. I sure hope it's verse five. <laughs> Let's see, where is it here? Okay. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. So see, he's not taking credit to himself. In fact, when I get to this, I'll just get ahead of myself. Just this one. He said, we had boldness. And in, in who did they have boldness? Look at it up here. Look at that verse. Last line. They had boldness in God, not themselves. That's the key. That is, that is imperative. The things that they did were so extraordinary, astonishing. But it wasn't because they were so great. I think they were great, but that's not why they did it. They couldn't do it. It's because their boldness was in God. They just believed God could do anything He wanted to do. And if God sent them into those cities, it didn't matter whether they were pagans and Jews and all of them had their knives out and clubs and were ready to have at them, they would stroll in there and give them the gospel because that was the power and God was going to protect them. Nothing could happen unless God allowed it. That's great, isn't it? And that's where we'll go next time. Time to close. Let's uh, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to revel in Your Word we just love You because we love Your Word. I mean, we, we can't separate You from Your Word. And we thank You for revealing these things to us. Boy, do we need this encouragement to, to recognize and know that we can be bold in who and what You are. And this is what You want us to do. But we have to know what we're talking about. So we pray that You will challenge us to keep on 
taking it in and seeing wonderful things that you will do. We pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.